Welcome to this episode of the 9420 podcast, where we talk about the music that we love and the industry that we tolerate. Past the midnight hour, riding next to the lifeguard tower, the stars in the moonlight glitter in her eyes. We danced slow to the radio. I didn't want to let her go. The way we moved like clockwork in the At night, holding you close, never felt so right. The taste on your lips of tequila and the lime. Searching for words and a reason to stay, something to put driving home on delay. A piece of my heart forever a part of the sand.
everyone. Welcome to this episode of the 9420 Podcast. That was Adam Calvert's single, Sun-Kissed Summertime. Hi, Carl and Greg. How are you guys doing hey, today? Hey, Nicole. Good morning, fellow hey, podcasters. Hey, hey Carl. <laughs> Carl. Carl's cl- changed the clocks again. <laughs> yeah. So what did you guys think of Adam's song? I like Adam. It's, it's cool. It, it, you know what you are? I love about it? You know, hope he doesn't take offense to this. In the beginning, it kind of reminds me of Leonard Skinner a bit. Off of that, the first Leonard Skinner record with the, with the guitar, melodic guitar intro. And then, so, I, I think you'll probably take it as a compliment. Where is he from? Where is he from? I think he's from, uh, if I'm not mistaken, I think he's from Ohio area, somewhere yeah, in Ohio. Yeah, I think he's in and around the Ohio area. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting because there is there is ab- absolutely a distinctive Nashville sound, and for people that are making what they believe to be contemporary country records, they tend to sound the same. This really doesn't, uh, and I don't think that's necessary necessarily a negative thing. Um, this it's got its own kind of feel, and um, it will probably uh, do well for him um, in in that part of the country. It feels uh, legit, right? Well, like you say, well, not so much these days, but maybe a while, maybe a few, maybe 10 years ago or 15 years ago, it was before everything got pretty much automated where you can do a lot of stuff with plugins and, you know, sequences and stuff. You know, when guys played on records, it was the same, like 10, 15 guys playing a little demo. It really was. You know, so that's why they all kind of sound the same. You know? Exactly. So, uh, if you're trying to do that, if, if you're trying to emulate that from another state, uh, and you know, you've just basically listened to the same fifteen players play all the uh, albums for the last ten years. You know, it can get stale pretty quickly. But this this doesn't seem to to be that. So, but you know, but you know what kind of like you know, just kind of you know, is the contrary to that. Mm-hmm. If you think about it, the um, the Wrecking Crew, those guys played on like. 50 million singles and they all sounded different. Yeah. It's, they all just sound like. It's really amazing. So that, so how do you explain it's that? It's really, well, uh, it's uh, the imagination of the producers. I mean, quite frankly, it's the talent of the players. It's the arrangements. And then it's the imagination of the producers and kind of letting those folks have uh, free reign where you think it's going to best serve the song or the track. Because I can tell you that for the last 15 or 20 years, most producers that made records in Nashville, I don't think they were winning any awards for creativity or for kind of breaking new ground. As a matter of fact, I can tell you numerous times where uh, the publishers and the writers created the demos and that only to find that they'd get a cut. Uh, and their arrangements, their demos would end up being revisited on the record that got made. In other words, the producer just kind of copped all the ideas and just kind of redid the sound. So that's kind of a creepy thing. But Well, that's why I never liked, you know, like I think I've talked about this before. I never really loved super demoing out a song, you know, either, either yeah. because cause there's an old adage in rock and roll, you know, beat the demo. Because a lot of times you create this great demo because right. you get this kind of a vibe you create and capture. I've done this a few times with, with bands where we did this great eight-track demo, right, of a song. And then it was, like, really cool. We went into the studio, the big, you know, 24-track, the only thing. Just, just basically did the same exact stuff again because we knew what we did. But it ain't there. Yep. You, you, something is missing. You know, there was something that you captured. Personally, I like to just do acoustic guitar and the vocal. 
or piano and vocal just to get the song structured down right. and then wait until you're actually going to cut it. And, we'll and then, just then let the producer bring what they're going to bring. Well, then you see what it becomes and then let it become that. And that's what it is. Yeah. You know, as opposed to like, you know, cause I know songs that are demoed to death, you know, like yeah. they, they've you know, so many different times and different, you know, it's like, come on already, you know? Yeah. And they have to, uh, the songs themselves have to stand up with under that arrangement, under a piano vocal or a, or, you know, a guitar vocal. I mean, if they don't stand up, um, that's an issue in and of itself, right? But I'll tell you something, another thing interesting, though, I find with my stuff, especially now because I'm thinking of recording some new stuff finally again. Yay. When you, when you do a, rec- uh, a vocal demo, when you start off with a song with an acoustic guitar and a voice, there's only a, a certain place you can go with that. You know, if you put down the, basically you put down a click and then put down the acoustic guitar to get the structure and then build around that, then it still always has that kind of acoustic guitar structure to it where sometimes it's best to just build from like, you know, the, 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 the rhythm track and then add a couple of new ones and build a song that way. And like, and don't get locked into the strumming of a guitar or the, you know, the piano structure. And I think that's what makes some of these, I think that's what someone like Billie Eilish does. I think they, they create these cool tracks and, and vibey things. And then they just sing over them, mm-hmm. you know, um, as opposed to just writing a song and then producing the song. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I think that uh, it's kind of a classical way in which uh, pop music has been created. It kind of took it took its cues from an earlier time where the intro establishes the song. You know, you know what's interesting about that, though? You know, another contrary example, I'm all over the place. One thing I love about the Beatles anthology, which is kind of cool, and the reason why the Beatles anthologies came out, those like, 10 CDs or whatever, because basically they were realizing people were bootlegging all their stuff anyway. So they figured, why don't we just put it together ourselves and make the money ourselves on it? So they just basically opened the vaults and put everything out. Right. But a lot of it you see like where they maybe did like five or 10 different versions of songs, yeah. different tempos, different instrumentations. And it's funny when you listen to those, they kind of pick the right one. You know, that was the single. Like, you listen to Help or listen to, like, um, Eight Days a Week or some of those older. And they there's all these different versions that I go, what? You know, and then then you hear the one they chose. So they tried a bunch of different things, too. So I don't know. Then again, another guy who did it a very different way, Billy Joel. He would just play the song on the piano, and they would just start playing around it. That's how they recorded their songs. They didn't, like, prearrange or sit down. He just would play it, and they would just do it. Tape would be rolling. That's great. That's a take. Maybe a couple of overdubs, and that's it. So yeah, I guess everyone has their different ways of doing it, you know. And uh, but again, it's getting back to where I think the immediacy of the recording what makes it cool. I don't know if it happens with digital, but I know what happens with magnetic tape. Tape is bizarre. It, like you know, why those Motown records sound so great? You know, when you got four guys in a room playing doing something, something gets. It's like this weird little magical thing that happens. That I don't know what it is, but it. I know it's there. You know what I mean? I think they're, mm-hmm. I think they're ambient to some degree. I mean, I think you're actually, uh, it, it used to matter where you were recording things. So I think that they've actually captured what moving air in those particular spaces sounds like. I went to, um, the Motown museum, you know, cause, mm-hmm. uh, a, a, f- a few months back, you know, before this pandemic and, uh, and, and I went into the studio down there and it's like this little basement you know it was it was literally this little room it was crazy and that's where all this supreme stevie wonder four tops temptations this is where they record a lot of stuff yeah. in this little room it's amazing there was magic that gets captured that like and today i think one thing that technology kind of ruins a little bit for me it's just too technical and too sonic 
and it's cool. I love some of it, but you lose some of the some of the I can the nuance or the ambiance, like you said, or just some of that that unknown factor stuff that you know that makes records great. You know, recording live, playing live, hearing the band live, because I think that's what kind of comes across on those records. Is that in those early records, the Beatles played live. You know, in those early Elton John records, there was a band in the room playing this stuff. Right. You know. You know. Nowadays, it's all layered and pieced together and built upon and, and dubbed and overdubbed. And yeah, it's cool. And some of the records are great, but there's something about like when two musicians are in a room doing something and they connect and, and they're in a rhythm and they're in a, you know, a groove and then the guitar comes in and they're all there. It's like, yeah. Whoa, something gets captured that that's why, that's why I think we love seeing bands live. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Yeah. I recently saw a documentary on a very short, but kind of, really on point and and i had never seen most of the footage i saw a documentary on the making of uh yellow brick road and uh it was oh really i love this yeah it was uh it's kind of buried in hulu somewhere it was really interesting in that a lot of those tracks were actually at least the rhythm tracks were delivered first take second take third take kind of thing and then they just sweetened and did overdubs but there's a lot of live playing on that album. And that album is extraordinary in so many ways. Oh, that's one of my favorites. There was also a, a lot a of writing. Yeah, there's also a lot of writing that went down in the studio. Man, we're talking a lot about music this week. How about that? It's funny. Well, the question of the week was what, Nicole? It was, what was your favorite memory from a concert? What about you? What's your favorite, Nicole? So I was, I've been thinking about this because I'm in a different generation than both of you. Yeah, but don't start. Don't start. I have two favorite memories. The first, and my grandmother would say, "Don't scare me now. Don't yeah, scare don't me." Scare you guys. <laughs> um, so the first one is actually going to see the police at Jones Beach Amphitheater or whatever it's oh, called cool. nowadays, and that was a really favorite memory of mine because it was the first job I had out of college was sponsoring the concert, so we got we got like the VIP treatment. So it was fun to kind of go into the world of like go backstage and get wined and dined and see this really good concert with like an iconic type band. So that was probably like a career milestone memory for me. And then a personal one was me and my husband. Um, it was the first concert we saw once he was out of the military and we were able to snag Chris Stapleton tickets for when he played at Ascend Amphitheater down in downtown Nashville. It was maybe oh, cool. like two or three years ago at this point. And I like Chris Stapleton. It, like that concert in general, it was probably one of the ones that me and my husband both were like, this guy is phenomenal like goosebumps the entire time very cool yeah what about you greg oh i don't know i sound like an old guy um <laughs> steven so, when you steven Eady, yeah, yeah no earl i used to see earl a lot down there at uh, the uh, robert e lee inn uh in new albany indiana no you know i think my maybe my most memorable memorable concert was for some very odd reasons actually it, I used to like the opening bands. Of course you did. I would, I would like listening to like really obscure opening bands. And then on a lark, sometimes they would actually, if they were from the UK, they would be touring with a, a more well-known band. Well, I saw a band that I'd never heard of before in 1975 open for Jethro Tull. And this band was called the Sensational Alex Harvey Band. And they were, oh, yeah, sure. they were just completely bizarre one of the founding kind of groups of art rock or theater rock or 
very hard to describe. I know the name well. I couldn't tell you one of their songs, but I know the name. Yeah, uh, Alex Harvey is a Scottish kind of uh, performer, actually kind of mid-60s pop performer, but then kind of recreated himself in the 70s rock world, and the band became kind of almost medley for the time. But I got to see those guys, and they were just absolutely mesmerizing. This is 1975. Subsequently bought all their albums and listened to them and really enjoyed them. And they were they were great fun. They just happened to be releasing that year. They released a live album of the tour that I saw. So it wasn't the show that I saw, but it was basically the tour. So it was all the songs. It's also memorable because that concert happened at this magical venue in Louisville, Kentucky called Louisville Gardens. And mm-hmm. Louisville Gardens was 6,000 seats, which is absolutely the perfect. Big enough spot. to be big, but not too big to be ridiculous. It's, right? sounds like a rock concert, but it's intimate. Uh, and right. so I did a little background check to see when the date was it was 1975 but um kind of discovered something a little disheartening louisville gardens has been vacant and unused for the last few years it's so sad i hope they don't lose it it's just a magical place we asked this question to a few people this is uh is jack randall he's an artist so jack randall's not an artist he actually is a fellow podcaster who found us and reached out to us to let us know that we are doing a good job with our podcast. So I thought it thank would be fun. You, thank to, you, Jack. Yeah, I thought it would be fun to have him answer our question of the week. So the question was, what is your fondest live concert memory? Mm-hmm. Here's what Jack had to say. My favorite concert memory is I recently went to see Lizzo at the Budweiser stage in Toronto with my sister and my two good friends, Chloe and Ainsley. And it was just absolutely electric. Lizzo was great. Lizzo was twerking, playing the flute singing it was it was awesome the atmosphere was great the weather was fantastic and yeah it's just a very fond memory i have from right before covid struck so if you're thinking about going to see lizzo when things open up i definitely would recommend it was just a fantastic concert and an absolutely great time thanks for having me on i don't know much about lizzo who is lizzo i actually discovered lizzo via being interviewed a year or two ago by terry gross and discovered that she's like this strange amalgamation of rap and twerking uh, and classically trained flout. She's a flautist. She's a, she's a flautist. Yeah. So uh, I did know who Lizzo was, surprising to me. Gangster, flautist kind of vibe. Very cool. Yeah. Another one, um, Dana, right? She's an artist. Dana, she's an artist. Let's see what Dana had to say. I have so many favorite concert memories, like getting day of $100 side stage seats for Harry Styles and falling in my Heelys as a teenager while trying to run after the Jonas Brothers in their limo. But one really takes the cake. So I was interning at the Stone Pony in Asbury Park, which is a pretty legendary club in New Jersey, where I'm from, and where Bruce Springsteen got his start. And we got word that Bruce was coming down there to play a surprise show at the tiny club down the boardwalk called The Wonder Bar. So I immediately text my parents, who are some of the biggest Bruce fans I know, and just rushed to finish my intern duties, which was like passing out flyers while a concert was letting out. And then I literally ran down the street about a half hour later, met my parents at the Wonder Bar, and we're literally about five feet from the stage. And sure enough, after waiting a bit, Bruce comes out and does one of the coolest sets I've ever seen. And we end the night outside watching him pull out of the parking lot in his car, and it was awesome. <laughs> Definitely. 
Yeah. I, I, I could see that. That's a, that's that's a major good. memory right there. I remember like following bands specifically to like find out where they were, or what concerts they were going to be at before social media or like a lot of the internet stuff was around. And it was really fun to like figure out through word of mouth, like where they were going to be and what time they were going on. And I don't know that that's kind of like a really fun thing to like look back on. And uh, her story about Bruce Springsteen just reminds me of when I was a teenager and following fallout boy and figuring out what clubs they were playing at on Long Island. So, so um, my favorite, you want to tell me my favorite? Yeah, I have one that's probably my coolest I've gone to, you know, which was like, and I was too drunk to even know I was there. And I, and I can't even tell you. I know I was there because I, because like back in high school, I had this, I had this 67 Chevy wagon, right? So I had the car. What color was the car? It was red. It was red. We used to call it uh, Edna. Sounds like a great name. It was a 67 Chevy Biscayne wagon, Edna. Anyway, you know, these, these friends of mine, you know, this girl, Marty and Marilyn, they bought tickets to go see Bowie at Radio City, the Ziggy Stardust tour. This is like 73. I didn't even know who Bowie was, 72. I didn't know who Bowie was. It's his first time in America. And they said, well, we'll give you a ticket if you'll drive us. I go, okay. So I drove everyone from Long Island, drove to Radio City, got drunk, set up in who knows where. So I was at, you know, Bowie's American Ziggy Stardust tour, which is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. You know, it was the first time he came to America. And I've seen him a bunch of times later. There was one cool scene where the band, the Spiders from Mars, came up from the orchestra pit. He sang Growl and Control, you know, that kind of stuff. So, <laughs> but probably the best show that I remember being at was, um, I think I might've even mentioned this before, was I saw Peter Gabriel on Shock the Monkey Tour at Forest Hills in Queens. And I guess, I guess that was in the 80s, 87, something like that. He was almost like spiritual seeing him play. One thing I remembered most about that show, he has this one song called Lay Your Hands On Me. And this is the first time I ever saw this done. One of the first guys I ever saw with a wireless headset mic right. so he could w- walk around. He laid into the audience during the, during the chant end of the song and literally must have been pushed back, I'd say, no exaggeration, 50 rows. Hmm. You know, just, you know, and but for like five, eight minutes, he's just being pushed back, singing the song. And they're, they're not grabbing him. It's like, they're literally like just moving him back gently and moving him around the audience and then moved him back to the stage. And I'm watching this going, holy cow, man. Wow. It was intense. It was like spiritual, you know? Yeah, that, that was the coolest show. I remember leaving that go, wow. I remember leaving that show going, wow, amazing. Anyway, we do have one more, uh, I think, answer to be featured, if I am correct. And Eaton. Let's hear what Eaton had to say. Eaton Moses. She's an artist? She is an artist. My favorite concert memory is a tough one to choose because I'm from Iowa and we have the State Fair and they bring in amazing acts. But I think my favorite concert memory has to be when I was 18. It was my birthday and we went to see Dirk Bentley for like the fifth time that year. And as a small town starstruck girl, he pulled my sign up and I was in the front row and he was like, happy birthday. He probably said darling. And I thought that was the coolest thing. And I just loved him. And from then on, he had like a fan for life. So probably my favorite concert memory was going to Dirk Bentley when I turned 18. The last country radio seminar that I went to, I rode uh, in an elevator up three floors with Dirk Bentley. If that qualifies me for being a, a fan or uh, being uh, like kind of a cool country music industry person. Well, I was at a concert once, you know, very similar. I was in, I was in the second row, basically the Calderon Concert Hall in Hempstead, you know, back in probably the 80s. 
you know, early 80s. And I saw Cheap Trick, and Cheap Trick had just released Dream Police, right? Mm -hmm. I was in a band called Dreamer. So, and if you never know, Rick Nielsen from Cheap Trick always used to have all these buttons on his shirt and stuff, right? Right, 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 right. The second row, I hand him out a button, right? And he looks at it, and he saw Dreamer, and he goes, cool. So that was my similar thing where he took my button and put it on his guitar strap. And, I'll be there. Yeah, and then, That's so, cool. I love Cheap Chick. They're, they're a cool band. You know, they're yeah. one of my favorite. They're a really know. wonderful band. Um, a friend of mine uh, actually got to uh, do some shows with them, a guy named uh, Bill Lloyd wonderful artist and a, a writer in his own right yeah they've always been a super cool band and uh really i'll tell you something funny mm. uh, i funny but i just happened to see a a little like quick little like cheap trick documentary clip and one of the things was i don't know if you heard the song their big song was their live at budokan yeah of i want you to want me right right and he goes and the reason why if you listen to that track he goes in the beginning he goes i want you to want me he does it real slow like that right and they everyone, everyone's going like that was very cool he introduced the song and he said the reason was robin zander the singer and he says the reason why he did it that way because he was in japan and he figured if he talked slower they understand what he was saying right. <laughs> it wasn't like he was trying to do anything geographic. he was going this song is i want you that's <laughs> it and it was like, and if you've listened to the record, that's one of the biggest things in the beginning of the record. Yeah, yeah. You know, so. Pretty amazing record. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah. how about we'll just basically end out with... Um, with another with another Adam Calvert single. I think this is his new single, right? It's a, yeah, Where I think it literally just came out this week. Where People Don't Go. Where People Don't Go. Very cool. So why don't you, um, anything else you want to say? Keep no, rocking. I had... I had fun listening to everyone's memories this week. One sad thing since our last recording was Leslie West died. Yeah, yeah. Mountain. Which to me was like, if anyone knows, Mountain, Leslie yeah. West is like, he was my favorite. Did we talk about him last time? No. No, we didn't. No, but yeah, because he was he was one of my idols. Him and Mick Ronson were my two guitar heroes when I was a kid. Anyone who out there wants to hear an, the most amazing, one of the most amazing leads, a song called Theme for an Imaginary Western, the last harmonic note is like, ugh, the tone of this guy. And what's cool about him too is like, he was like probably like 5'8", 320 pounds, and he used to play this Les Paul Jr., which is even a smaller guitar than a regular Les Paul. And he had these big, like, fat hands. But for some reason, maybe that's why his tone was so amazing, but it'd be like, he had the best vibrato. I think he was amazing. Anyway, so he passed. So that's that's sad. I hate when our heroes music go, you know? music is immortal. Go listen to the track. right. So, but mm -hmm. that but that harmonic note and theme for the Magic Western will be here forever. Yeah, so that's great. Mm -hmm. So talk us out. And we'll play. Uh, then we'll play Adam's tune. Okay. Uh, Sound, Nicole, sounds good. All right, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the ninety four twenty podcast. For all of the links to anything that we've referenced in this episode, you can go to our website, which is ninety four twenty dot com. That is the numbers ninety four and the letters T W E N T Y. Wait, what, what, what are those magic words again? <laughs> uh, <laughs> Ooh, I like that one. That's our new one. Making me a princess or something like that. <laughs> Waving the and magic now, wand. Our princess Nicole will tell us how to get to the website. <sighs> Nicole gets a little fan mail, and then the next thing you know, she's a princess. I'm a princess. Yep. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, everyone. Go to our website, 9420.com, for all of the links to the show notes. And until next time, we'll talk to you later. And this is Adam Calvert. Adam Calvert's uh, Where People Don't Go. Take care, everybody. Mm -hmm.
There's a middle of nowhere, a gravel road where nothing but tractors pass by. Past the county line where the county guys get sick of putting back that Green Street sign. We're rolling hills and old corn fields wrap around a little wooden white church. And all I've earned and all I've learned comes rushing back to me round every turn. Where people don't go, you either stay or you come back home. Back to the back roads, tailgate buzzing to some country gold. Little moonlight, bush light, sitting fireside all night. Yeah, if you know me, you know you'll find me where people don't go. Won't find it on a GPS If you've ever found it's cause you lost no doubt It just got lucky I guess Where a hole in the fence means clothes on a limb And watching her cool off And no trespassing just means watch your ass And boy you better not get caught No, where people don't go You either stay or you come back home Back to the backwoods, tailgate buzzing to some country gold. Little moonlight, bush light, sitting fireside all night. Yeah, if you know me, you know you'll find me. To some country gold, little moonlight bus ride, sitting fireside all 